0: You're listening to Word and Spirit with Pastor James Bove of Calvary Anaheim. To find out more, go to calvaryanaheim.org. And now, here's Pastor James.
1: Again, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 5. Samuel has been established as a prophet in Israel. Uh, The prophetic word against Eli and his sons has come to pass. Remember that Israel got into a battle with the Philistines. They were soundly defeated. Eli's sons were both killed in the same day as foretold by the Lord. And the Ark of the Covenant was captured. This was devastating to Eli and to the people. In fact, uh, when Eli heard of it, he fell backwards, broke his neck, and died. Of Phinehas' uh, wife went into labor, naming her son Ichabod. The glory has departed before she died herself. So, what a tragic situation. We see once again the book of Judges, you know, uh, coming out here where uh, there was no king in the land, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes rather than seeking God And uh, so God brings the judgment that he promises through the Mosaic Covenant that his people Israel are are in with him. And that brings us to chapter 5, verse 1. It says, then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Now, Ashdod is on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, almost directly west of Jerusalem. Verse 2, when the Philistines took the ark of God... They brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. Who's Dagon? What's Dagon? Dagon is their false god. It's the primary god of the Philistines. According to tradition, he's the, the father of Baal. You remember Baal worship and Elijah and the competition he had with all the worshipers of Baal. Well, his, Baal's father in this, you know, this mythology is uh, Dagon. Dagon's name means grain. He was the god of crop fertility. And uh, some depictions show him as a merman, uh, half fish, half man. So from the waist down, he looked like a fish. And so perhaps he was the god of fish as well. This was a coastal uh, town. And so, again, the primary god of the Philistines, they worshiped him through sacrifices, presumably food. Um, animals, and humans, and they had festivals with dancing and feasting and things like that. They had temples uh, to Dagon located in three places uh, along the coast there, Uh, Beth Dagon, Gaza, and then here in Ashdod. You remember maybe the story of Samson, and Samson had a lot of conflict with the Philistines. They finally captured him after he wreaked havoc in their land and they, uh, you know, they had his head shaved, and so he lost his strength. Not that his strength was in his hair, but it was in the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit had directed him not to cut his hair. And anyway, that's a different story. We're not in that today. So, you might remember, though, that they took him out after he had lost his strength to jeer at him and to make fun of him. And he Put his hands on those pillars that supported that temple and he prayed for strength one last time and he pushed those pillars down and this temple to Dagon came falling down and it killed all three thousand including himself and so now we're in a similar situation where the Philistines have captured the ark of the covenant and they've put it in the temple of their god Dagon really to brag over you know, our God is better than your God kind of thing, and we've defeated you, and, and so we have a stronger God, and so we're going to put this, this Ark of the Covenant uh, before this, this God of ours, Dagon. And so we get to verse 3 here. It says, and when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the earth before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. I love this because they wake up in the morning and their God had fallen down and is bowing before the Ark of the Covenant. What a beautiful picture that is. And also a sign. You would think they would look at it and go, this is a sign from God. But instead, they they take their idol and they put it back up, you see, is what they do. And I think that there's a lesson for us in this, that when God knocks your idol down, it's best to leave it there. Don't set it back up. If you have an idol in your life, maybe it's an addiction that you're putting above God. Maybe it's shopping. I don't know. It could be anything. Or idols can be anything that we put above the one true God, right? It could be your hobby. You know, you're into surfing, and that's all you can think about, and it drives all of your decisions and your time in life. It's an idol. It could be that car that you just, oh, man, you love it. You just can't stop thinking about that. All you want to do is work on it. And it gets in your way of your relationship with God, and it's an idol. And it could be the typical things that we normally talk about, right? Alcoholism, pornography, and sexual addiction, things like that that really ruin people's lives as they give themselves over entirely to it. But then God comes along. Then God, he comes along. And by his power, we're delivered from these things. As we cry out to him for salvation, those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And and saved not just from hell, but our life here now is saved from those things that would have dominion over us. And so God comes along and has victory in our lives. And we're walking in victory. And that idol is down, right? And so God would say, don't put it back up again. Leave it down there. In fact, there's a scripture here in Proverbs 26, verse 11. It says, as a dog returns to his own vomit, ew." so a fool repeats his folly. And so just like it's gross to see a dog throw up and then come back and eat it again, this is what it's like when we have been delivered from our idols and then we step back into it and we start eating the vomit again. Let's look at verse 4. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold or the entrance. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. So they made a superstition of it because they recognized this was a supernatural thing. This was not something that, you know, some local teenagers came in to vandalize their God, but this was the God of Israel that did this. And so, because of that, we recognize that we're not going, we're going to avoid that spot (laughs) as if that will help. And so, verse six, though, it says, But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod. God was not pleased. Even though God was using the Philistines to discipline his people, he was not pleased with their choice to oppress his people and then to take the Ark of the Covenant, which belongs to Israel. You see, God and Israel are in covenant relationship, not the Philistines and God. And so Israel, they are God's chosen people, his chosen people. And so he will take up a reproach for them and he is going to reveal himself to these uncircumcised Philistines, as David would call them later, and he's going to get himself back to Israel. So we read on in uh, verse 6 again, the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. So this was most likely the bubonic plague, the same plague that struck uh, the, you know, middle, in the Middle Ages, the Black Death, where 30% of the people died makes COVID look like nothing, you know, compared to what they went through. But this was probably the blue blank play because it was carried by rats, as we find out later. Uh, That is conjecture. We don't know exactly what it was, but it was associated with rats. And then verse 7, it says, and when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh toward us. And Dagon, our God. Maybe it's time to switch gods. Verse 8: Therefore, they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. Let's take it to another town. (laughs) After all, it might just be coincidence right? We might just be going through these plagues here, but if we take the ark over there to that town, maybe nothing will happen to them, and it was just coincidence. So they carried the ark of God of Israel away. So it was, after they had carried it away, that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction. Now Gath is getting (laughs) the hand of the Lord. And he struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them, now, in a, another transcript, it, it says that these tumors were in their secret parts. Ah. And so some Bible scholars say, well, this was probably hemorrhoids, um, or it could just be, you know, um, sores in, in their, private, their other private parts. At any rate, it doesn't sound very comfortable at all. And perhaps God was judging them for, you know, certain... Uh, sexual sin and activity that would surround their worship and such. But uh, God knows that. Anyway, it was obviously the presence of the Ark of the Covenant, which was the presence of God on earth, that was causing these things in their lands. Verse 10, therefore they sent the Ark of God to Ekron. Uh, (laughs) You know, the Philistine lords are in a tough spot here aren't they? When you think about it politically, right, you you kind of rule, and you've got your your temple worship to the god Dagon and other gods and stuff, and you defeat Israel because, hey, our god's better than their god, and we get their ark, and all the people are, yay, yay, and now God's in your presence, and he's wreaking havoc, but you don't want to admit that as a leader, the humble thing to do would be to admit it, but instead, they want to find a, a, a way out, right? As some politicians would call it, a golden bridge behind you, like people are kind of trying to do with Putin, right? <laughs> like, hey, let's give him a golden bridge out, not, not put him in a corner. And, and so here, these Philistines are finding themselves being put in, into a corner by God, Verse 10, middle of verse 10, so it was as the ark of God came to Ekron that the Ekronites cried out saying, they have brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. What are you guys doing? We saw what happened in those other towns. Now you're bringing the ark to us? Man, the people know. You can fool some of the people some of the time, but not all the people all the time. I can't remember how that expression goes. But anyway, the people figure it out eventually, right? And so uh, here the people, they understand what's going on. And they're like, we don't want that ark and we don't want that God in our area to... Hurt us. So verse 11, so they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go back to its own place so that it does not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there and the men who did not die were stricken with the tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven now there could be natural explanations to these things we could talk about bubonic plague and and just how it spreads naturally and things like that but the timing of it is what removes the the thought of being coincidence and when we can associate a, a behavior with a consequence so closely especially when we see a pattern we know this is the hand of god And perhaps you've seen this in your own life with, uh, you know, either before you were saved as God was wooing you to yourself and you saw his hand in your life until you finally surrendered yourself to him, or perhaps it was the discipline of God in your life as a believer, because those whom God loves, he will discipline, and he chastens every child that is his, otherwise you're an illegitimate child and not children at all. And so we can expect that there will be discipline in our lives. And we'll find that with, sometimes with association. I remember I was driving home one day and I had had some uh, bad thoughts and things and, and um, lustful thinking uh, just to be vulnerable and truthful. And, and then there was, um, there was a green light in front of me and I was going to turn left and I heard a siren and I'm like, I couldn't tell exactly where it was was coming from, and I thought it was coming from one direction, but because of the echo or something, it sounded like it was actually coming from the other. And I pulled out right in front of uh, an emergency, uh, you know, vehicle. And I'm like, ah! And I got out of the way real quick, you know, off to the side. But there was a police officer right behind, like it was an ambulance or fire truck, can't remember. Pulled me over, got myself a big ticket. It was the association, though, of the thinking with what happened where I knew this was God saying, hey, watch yourself, buddy. (laughs) You know, let's not go that way. Let's not go that route. And so God relates to us in different times in different ways. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. But sometimes it's his discipline that is the kindest thing that he can do for us. And so uh, here... These guys are are receiving the heavy hand, and they're seeing an association here with what's happening with the Ark of the Covenant and how they stole the Ark from the children of Israel and the glory had left them. Now, chapter 6, let's get into chapter 6, verse 1. It says, now the Ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. It really reminds me of the great tribulation that is to come probably pretty soon on the horizon here, and that's gonna be a seven-year tribulation where God begins to pour out his wrath upon the earth just like he's beginning to pour out his wrath upon these Philistines. Now, verse two, "'And the Philistines called for the priests "'and the diviners, saying, "'What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? "'Tell us how we should send it to its place.'" So they said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means, return it to him with a trespass offering. So they have the right idea, right, that, hey, we have trespassed against this God of Israel, so we need to give him a trespass offering. So their idea is to offer him what would make sense to them, rather than saying, what do you want? What does the God of Israel ask for? And the God of Israel says without without the shedding of blood there's no remission of sins. And so he requires the animal sacrifice as a foreshadowing in a very prescribed manner by the way as a foreshadowing to the perfect lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who would take away the sins of the world but they do it their way. And so let's read on. It says, then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. So they're thinking still, maybe this is coincidence, but maybe not. But hey, if we we offer these trespass offerings and we're healed, did we know that this was him And uh, he's accepted our offering. Verse 4. Then they said, what is the trespass offering which we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors. Oh. You mean the hemorrhoid? Oh. And five golden rats, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. You see, God is not a respecter of persons. He's impartial. You know, everybody dies, the rich and the poor, the male and the female. It doesn't matter what racial background you, are, you have. Everybody dies, and the Lord is impartial in this way. And um, he acts impartially. Jesus was impartial. When we see Jesus and how he ministered and what he said, he didn't pull punches with the people, no matter what status they were. And he also didn't hold back his love, no matter what status. We had Nicodemus, right? A very wealthy member of the Sanhedrin, a religious ruler. Jesus takes the time to minister to him. And then we have the woman who had the issue of blood and had spent all her money on trying to fix it. She was an impoverished widow who just came and touched the hem of his garment, and she was healed, and he showed her love and care. It didn't matter whether they were a Samaritan or whether they were Jewish. Jesus was there to minister to all. In fact, it says in Matthew twenty-two 16, we've got this scripture for you, uh, that they sent to him, that's the religious leaders sent to Jesus, uh, their disciples with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true. You're true. And teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. They're not saying you don't care, like, ah, oh, who cares about you? But you're not, he's not influenced by anyone. He's there to please God. He hears the Father and he speaks what the Father says. And it doesn't matter what people think. And that's how Jesus was on the earth and even his enemies recognize that. And that's how Jesus would have us to be. With each other, with those that we interact in, in the world, we're to speak the truth in love. We're not to be people who flatter because oh, that, that's, those are the popular people at work, at school, wherever. And so we want to, you know, we want to flatter them and have their favor. But those people, well, they're not as popular. And so, you know, we'll just say whatever we want to them. But God says, no, we're to be impartial, impartial. In fact, in James chapter two, it speaks of, hey, if a poor person in rags comes walking into your sanctuary, let them sit where they want to sit. You don't say, hey, you stand over there in the back. Or you sit here at my footstool because you're poor and in rags, but we're to be open and let anybody in is not as long as they're not disruptive, right? <laughs> uh, to what's happening now, verse five as we continue on in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 6. It says, therefore you shall make images of your tumors and images of your rats that ravage the land, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods and from your land. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts when he did mighty things among them? Did they not let the people go that they might depart? Verse 7, now therefore make a new cart, take two milk cows which have never been yoked, and hitch the cows to the cart and take their calves home away from them. And so these Philistines are remembering their history books, their lessons as kids that, wow, when the children of Israel were enslaved in Egypt, God said, let my people go. Pharaoh hardened his heart. The Egyptians hardened their hearts, would not let the people go. God sent plagues, and they hardened their hearts until finally, in the end of it all, their whole army was destroyed in the Red Sea. Their land had been completely ravished, all their crops and everything. Their economy devastated and it was a horrible situation because they hardened their hearts against the Lord. And so these guys are remembering back in their history books and going, let's not be like them. Let's not harden our hearts. And so the priests then give them a prescription of how they can get you know, the ark back to the children of Israel by taking these two milk cows, which have never been yoked, so they're untrained. They don't know how to use a yoke. They don't know how to work together as a team to actually go somewhere and have purpose. And they are, uh, remember they have calves, they're to be separated from their calves, so naturally these mothers are gonna wanna go to their children. So it would be a miracle if these cows on their own took the cart with the Ark of the Covenant and went up the road to the town Beth Shemesh. I think it was like 25 miles up a road. It would be a miracle for them to do that. But this is kind of a fleece that they're putting before the Lord, like, hey, if this is God, then the milk cows will go. Their God can handle that. If not, it was coincidence. They're still stuck on this coincidence thing. You ever have friends you talk to, and it's all a coincidence? You know, you talk about the miracles that happen in their life, in your life, and stuff like that, and it's like, oh, that was a coincidence. Boy, the other day, um, I was going for a jog, and I was jogging by an old friend's house, you know, that friend's been on my heart lately. I've been praying for him. And I was thinking, well, should I stop my jog and go knock on the door? I haven't seen him in in a long, long time and things like that. I didn't want to, you know, just interrupt and disrupt. And so as I'm approaching the house in my jog, I said, Lord, I just pray that if you want us to chat, that you'll just bring him out right now. And I kid you not, as I finished, there he is coming out to his car. And I said, hey, brother. He's like, oh my gosh. And we talked and had a good conversation and prayed and it was a good thing but you know coincidence right coincidence no no that was god
0: you've been listening to word and spirit with pastor james Beauvais of calvary anaheim in anaheim california if you're in the area we'd love for you to visit check out calvaryanaheim.org for location service times and more We'd love to hear from you. To let us know how God has touched your life through this program or to submit a prayer request, simply go to calvaryanaheim.org and scroll down to the Get In Touch form at the bottom of the homepage. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to listen again next time for another edition of Word and Spirit with Pastor James Bove. This program is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Anaheim.